podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm the senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Keely Barber, media editor at Digiday. We are fresh back from the Digiday Publishing Summit. And so we both have the interview this week because we did a live episode uh, during DPS with Lindsay Abramo, who's the chief revenue officer of Leaf Group. And I really enjoyed this conversation because Lindsay, like we talked primarily about the experiential business, but we were able to go pretty deep into what the state of Leaf Group's experiential business, but also Lindsay talked about how the experiential business ties into Leaf Group's other businesses, you know, like for example, how they're getting a good amount of demand um, from sponsors for event opportunities, but how they're, you know, Leaf's able to use that to um, kind of package in kind of more traditional ad opportunities or branded content opportunities. And so how they're using experiential to kind of bolster their ad business. And given what a lot of the conversations throughout DPS were like, it sounds like every publisher could use a little help in bolstering their ad businesses at the moment. Kaylee, what stood out to you about the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what you were saying was exactly right. Like most of the conversations at DPS were about how truly bad advertising is right now. And the one other kind of prevailing theme that I noticed is like the other revenue streams, the consumer revenue streams for publishers are doing pretty good. And events is kind of grouped into that. And I say that because Leaf Group's events business has historically been very rooted in consumer revenue, whether it's tickets or uh, like commerce, right? So their business, and Lindsay gets into this, um, is a little bit different from like a traditional publisher, but it seems to have been doing pretty decently since, you know, the uh, relaxation of the pandemic um, and events coming back. It's, it seems to have been doing pretty good, and now they're capitalizing on that return um, growth, and they're adding advertising into the mix. And, you know, we talk a great deal about how they're adding um, sponsors into their live events, um, you know, live events that traditionally didn't have advertising revenue for them. And it seems like all together, those businesses are doing pretty well, um, which was a, a very positive, I think, uh, you know, conversation to have in the midst of, you know, what everyone else was talking about. But yeah, I think it was really interesting how they have had this events business for a while. It seems to have been pretty good, you know, before adding advertising in, but they're seeing advertisers very eager to, you know, join in and, um, you know, doing so at a pretty fast clip too. I think she mentions one of the advertisers signed on and executed within like like a six week turnaround or something like that, which is pretty fast for events. So yeah, that was what was, you know, primarily interesting to me. How about you, Tim? Yeah, no, that was cool to hear about, you know, how, like she talks about the other art fair, which is, you know, one of Leaf Group's events that's, you know, going on, you know, right now, as we're speaking, I think it'll have wrapped up by the time the episode airs, but, you know, they did a deal with Nissan for it and with TaskRabbit for it. And these were two very different deals where Lindsay talks about how, you know, one was an inbound request, the other was an outbound um, generated by their sales team. One was more focused on kind of a brand awareness play. The other was more of a performance play where there was a conversion element to it. Um, one, like you mentioned, was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, I think it was six weeks, like you said. Um, and the other, I think, was like since last fall was when it started kind of coming together. So, you know, multiple months that that one um, spanned. So, yeah, I thought that was really 
interesting lens to look at um, how they're selling sponsorships, but then also just kind of like what advertiser demand for events are. So coming up a conversation about events recorded during one of our events. So Lindsay, you had an eventful morning getting here today. Oh my God. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I was pulled over by a cop on the way. I was not driving. The poor like kid, I was actually worried he wasn't even like age appropriate to drive because he was like completely panicking and he's like, I don't have my license. And I was like, oh my God, I have to be on a panel in 20 minutes. Should I just walk? Like, yeah, it's been like a minute. So hi and welcome. Morning. Nice adrenaline spike for the morning. Right. Which is probably like good considering like the state of the business these days. Oh, totally. Probably constant adrenaline spikes. Totally. Yeah, and I do, I'm excited to talk about Experiential because I do think that it is a bright spot in our industry right now. And um, I think there's tremendous opportunity and I think it can be thought of really uniquely now um, through the lens of publishers. So I'm excited to be here. And you all have a bit of a different Experiential business than we have here. Like you have yes. this whole art arm. You also own a house that you put events on. Yeah. And you have an event coming up this week. Is yeah, right? we have two events. So Leaf Group is kind of an interesting media group. It's actually not a media group. It has a media section, but it also has an art and commerce side of our business. And it's not reliant at all on advertising revenue. Um, One of our businesses is called the Other Art Fair, and it erects in 11 different cities across the United States. Um, We get somewhere between eight and 10,000 people in all these different fairs over two days. Um, And we've never brought brands into the experience before. So this is the year where we're gonna start to invite some select brands to come in and do some really unique kind of additive immersive experiences. That's happening this week in LA, our first fair. And we have um, two brand partners joining us this week. And then we also are doing a pre-event at um, our Hunker House, which is another sort of unique aspect of our business, which is our media brand, which is a home and design brand, Hunker, has a permanent physical expression of the brand. And it's the only brand who has a permanent physical sort of design shop um, that's open year round. And that gives us like a tremendous amount of opportunity to plug brands in more than just sort of a day pop up um, and do it really efficiently. One thing that we want to start this conversation off is asking like, Relative to 2019, pre-pandemic, how has the events business come back? And if it's uh, if you're seeing more consumers come, if you're seeing more interest in advertising, obviously you're adding advertising to some events now. But yeah. relative to pre-pandemic, and some publishers we've talked to in the town hall so far have said that they haven't been able to kind of get that business up and running again. Sure. What are the kind of comps from pre and then now? Are you seeing an increase? Is it flat? It's a great question. It's actually the thing that got me most excited about actually coming here. I'm actually new to LEAF. And this side of the business I thought was incredibly unique because I am sort of experiential in, in and of my core. And I am pleased with the numbers that I'm seeing so far in the industry, not just from LEAF itself. I'm seeing that not only are ticket sales up 25%, but so are sponsorship fees. Um, And this is not over last year. This is up over 2018 um, prices. So I I see already this is off to an amazing start. And it's only, is it still March? Yeah, it's still March. And we have really yet to get into event season. So we've really only seen this at CES. We've seen this a little bit at Sundance and some of the sort of the larger cultural moments. But there's lots of different trade events coming up. Um, I know we also talked about this being your biggest uh, publisher summit. It keeps on comping itself. Um, and I think that speaks for itself as well. So experiential, in my opinion, is back. But I think it, it's taking shape in new forms. Um, one of the things I really think about is that brands themselves 
are uniquely becoming experiential themselves too. Um, you know, they have to be really thoughtful about what products they're putting in front of uh, their consumers and how how that intent sort of shows up in real life. Um, so you see brands like Restoration Hardware that's becoming not only a store, but it now has restaurants and hotels and a jet. Um, and you see, you know, ones like Home Goods, which is doing like curated travel event businesses on the side inspired by their seasonal design trends. So they're themselves having to push themselves to be experiential. And I think it offers publishers a really unique opportunity to say, this is an editorial authority that we have, or this is proprietary sort of point of differentiation that we have, whether it's the home that we own a space in Abbott Kinney, which is sort of the intersection of cultural relevance, um, or we've got this fair business that, again, stands on its own two feet, has been a business for 10 years, has a built-in audience, um, and we don't have to actually build sort of from the ground up. We already are sort of just plugging into infrastructure that's already very successful. And with experiential revenue going up, you know, compared to pre-pandemic levels, I imagine part of that may be you may be, you know, operating more events now. Has per event revenue gone up? Yeah, per event revenue for us has gone up. And, you know, a lot of it is because we haven't thought about all of our parts of our business through the experiential lens. So it is growing because we're adding more to things that just sort of didn't exist in the past. But I also think we're able to command a bigger sponsorship fee now, too. Um, Definitely over the pandemic. Um, 2019, I also feel like from an events standpoint on the publisher side, at least from where I came from in sort of the various women's lifestyle businesses, was sort of a flat, you know, concept, which is sort of bring an editorial concept to life, IRL, build it from the ground up, create an audience, and plug brands into it. A lot of times, you'd ha the build was so expensive, you had to have multi-brand, and it became sort of a puzzle piece trying to pull it all together. Um, but I think now, you know, brands are looking for more. Um, and so I think you have to think a little bit uniquely about how to do that, and with that, you can charge more. Yeah, and so I definitely want to talk about brands' roles in events because you mentioned you're adding some advertisers into the mix. Yeah. I'm curious how experiential they want to get with their events sponsorships and yeah. if it's something that takes, I'm sure, a little bit more effort but a lot more planning too. I'm curious what the like process is when you're working with sponsors in getting them in, like properly intertwined into your events business so that they meet those KPIs. Because I think ultimately yeah. it comes down to like a ROI, but I'm curious yeah. like what those ROIs are, what the KPIs are, and then how big they want to go with it. Yeah, and I think the event that we're having in LA this week is a great example of that. So it's at the other art fair, and I'll give you two examples of, of brands that came to us for very different reasons. Um, so one is Nissan, um, which came to us from a brand awareness play, which you know is great news for the auto category, which has obviously been very hit in the pandemic um, due to you know several different issues from shortages to you know, shipping. And I think um, it's great to see the category coming back and starting to spend on launches again. Mm -hmm. um, so this is for the launch of their Aria vehicle. Um, generally, the, the first litmus is, can you get the vehicle into the space? And generally, that's sort of a feat in and of itself. So if you can do that, it's almost like step one and a major check. Um, so we will have the vehicle there. And then uh, for them, we're actually taking some of the unique characteristics of the vehicle and bringing them to life through the expression and experience of an artist. So we paired them up with an artist from our show, and we have an actual booth 
for Nissan. So they're completely embedded into the experience from a consumer standpoint and offering sort of this additive layer of, um, you know, consumer journey through the fair. Um, so I think that's really exciting because it's great news for auto in that we're thinking about brand awareness and top of the funnel again. Um, and, you know, with that, that was a real 360 deal. So that, you know, is anchored at the other art fair, but we also have a digital destination as well. So to give it sort of the national legs, we sort of did an AI version online to give other people access to the experience that was happening in LA. Um, so that was sort of how we packaged that one. That was a, a real 360. And again, from like top of the funnel brand awareness and a rather large deal. On the other side of the spectrum, we also have TaskRabbit coming into um, TOEF, which we call internally TOEF, the other art fair. Um, and that they came to us exclusively for conversion. Um, and so we're able to take TaskRabbit and give them just an experiential deal at the other art fair. Um, and we plug them into our cash wrap. We also had a whole sort of installation station as the art was being wrapped for consumers to understand how to hang from like a, a nailless hanging um, service. And then we had different brand ambassadors going through the fair sharing different coupons um, to get people to use TaskRabbit to hang their art at home. Um, so they were really excited about the different touch points that they could sort of access consumers really, again, from a very integrated and unique and natural way. Um, and they will definitely be, you know, sharing their conversion on how it works and, and you know, how we were able to drive, you know, access to, to TaskRabbit. So two very different sides of the spectrum. Um, that was an experiential only deal because it was really conversion related. They had really no interest in what we could do from a media standpoint. It was really about reaching those, you know, 8,000 people in LA. Yeah. And for both of them, for both Nissan and TaskRabbit, were those inbound? Like, did those initiate inbound or were they outbound where your sales team was reaching out to the brand? Uh, one was inbound and one was outbound. Okay. Yeah. Which was which? Uh, Nissan was an RFP and TaskRabbit was outbound. Okay. Were you surprised to get that RFP considering, like, auto? I'm thrilled. I'm just surprised and thrilled. Um, yeah, I, I am starting to see auto come back. Um, it's going to come back in pockets. You know, those who are going to generally have, like, one big launch this year. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, from a publisher perspective, like, where do you fit in that from an audience standpoint? This one specifically for Nissan and Aria was all about the convergence of art and culture. So it, you know, was a natural fit for us. When did that RFP come in? Let's see. It sold, I started in October. It sold in November and I believe it came in like late summer. Okay. Yeah. Is that around the timeline you would expect? Yeah, I think... For auto, yeah. yeah. Auto generally has a longer lead time anyway. Um, but that is a trend that I'm seeing in general, and I know we talked about also yesterday, is the need for shorter turnaround times, and that's something for experiential that's a challenge mm -hmm. in a lot of times, um, which is why building things from the ground up is particularly hard right now because advertisers are just needing more time to make decisions, more time to release the budgets. Um, and for production standpoint, a lot of times that can't happen unless you own the production in-house, which is why we're able to do that at the fair, we're able to do that at Hunker House, also really efficiently. What was the timeline for TaskRabbit? Six weeks. Okay, so <laughs> other end. So right. these are two very different deals, it sounds yes, like. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, for a while, I felt like advertisers only came to lifestyle publishers wanting to figure out how to get things from a 360. It's like they, you know, really didn't want just the event. They wanted to think, how do we give it national legs? What does it mean for digital? What are the impressions? Um, so for so long, we were so, you know, sort of 
bogged down with how do you create that like perfect package that you know hit on so many different KPIs. And I still see this, obviously, in an example of Nissan. Um, also in an example of a hunker house takeover that we did with Walmart and Gap Kids collection. That was another 360 deal. Um, but you know, my head of marketing, and I will give him credit, did push me a little bit this year saying, you know, specifically for the other art fair, I think we should think about, you know, experiential only packages um, because there are a lot of brands that we can go after that truly just want to reach those consumers on ground that day. Um, and we're able to do that at just, you know, a, a much smaller overall package price. Yeah. And touching on like the revenue side of it too, because yeah. you mentioned that you're able to get brands to spend a little bit more. You were seeing positive uh, interest in new advertisers in the adverti in the event space. But I'm curious, like the other art fair is a very commerce-driven event. That's yep. how it's been monetized yep. for, you know, the first however many years. What's the, I guess, revenue breakdown now that you're adding advertising in? And curious also what those advertisers are willing to spend on experiential, especially if it is very yeah. uh, just solo experiential. Yeah. Um, because this is our first year really bringing advertisers into the fold, like I think it's going to grow. Mm -hmm. um, we have 11 fairs this year. We'll kick off in LA. Um, we will end at a pop-up in Basel um, in Miami. I think that's going to considerably grow fair to fair. Um, currently right now, it's still predominantly uh, ticket sales and commerce revenue. Um, but I, I do think that that will grow tremendously by the end of the year. Just it's a longer selling cycle to even think about getting the other art fair out into this world. Because um, previous to me joining, I don't think a lot of people thought about bringing it to the brand community. And for me, it was like such the obvious low-hanging fruit, um, such an untapped you know, asset. So it's also going to be sort of a longer cycle in just even getting people understanding what it is. And same thing with Hunker House. Quite frankly, a lot of people know Hunker as a brand, and it's a really unique intersection from like the high-level interior design-driven design world and then sort of like apartment living and sort of what is in between. Um, and so a lot of people understand that brand but don't know that we own the house on Abbott Kinney. So a lot of it is an awareness play in the ad community, which is going to lead to just, I think, longer lead times in the beginning. Um, so I, I imagine that a lot of this business is going to ramp in second half. Um, and then in terms of, you know, how they're spending, um, you know, not to disclose too much information without getting all, everyone's approval, um, but let's just say that we're seeing deals span experiential only at 50K, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, generally for a build, like its own custom build, you really can't do. Because a lot of the times when you're doing your own custom build, that advertising money is packaged in to actually get the build up and off the ground. What are the costs usually for that? For production? Yeah. I mean, it's high. So to do, like, if we were to do our own, let's say, hunker house, and to take a, you know, a month takeover of a home, um, it would be three to $5 million. Because you'd have to think about what's the rent, you have to think about all the production pieces, all of the programming. Whereas this is an extension of our brand, so we're constantly doing content production there. We have a whole content production studio, so we're using it always on and evergreen, even outside of brand partnerships for our own editorial needs and, and use. Um, and so we're able to just plug in from a much you know, cheaper way. So does that mean without a hunker house, you would need to do 60, 50K experiential only deals to break even. Yeah, it's, it's really high. Wow. It's really high to build anything from the ground up for a month. Right. You know, the month is really what gets you, that, which is why a lot of times brands are doing it for one or two day pop-ups. And then, they're, you know, you're trying to hit something somewhere around like one and two million dollars, depending on the programming. Okay. One and two million dollars, that's the revenue. That's In revenue. the cost. Okay. Yeah. Got it. 
Cause, yeah, because, I mean, what would the cost then be for that? I if mean, three to five million for a month. Everyone's margins are different. Sure. But <laughs> uh, generally speaking, uh, it's generally like a 50% margin business. Okay. Well, that's good business to be, yeah. 50% yeah. margins these days. <laughs> I know. It's a 50K kind of at the low end for experiential yeah. only. What's experiential the range only. at the high end? Um, I've seen it, you know, one deal span over a million dollars. Um, and again, it just depends on sort of all the different programming involved and how many days and you know, just how, how integrated the deal itself is. God. Are there like hallmarks of what the components of a deal like that would be? Yeah, I think, you know, having a social element is also really important. So, and that's another thing that we uniquely have access to, which is um, we've got all these artists on our Saatchi platform, which is Saatchi Art, which also powers sort of all of the art side of our business, um, as well as Society6, which is, you know, a huge creator network. And we have 450,000 artists on that network. Um, about 10% of them have significant followings, which is really unique. So we can actually tap into that without having to go through a third party. But I do think talent and influencer is really, you know, helpful to sort of create this 360 and give you some more sort of press impressions. Um, I think, you know, having an actual unique experience for the consumer, so something that's custom and bespoke that gives the consumer a reason to experience the product is really sort of the core of it all. Um, gone are the days where you can just logo slap or, um, you know, sort of just have a brand or product inclusion. Um, so I think, you know, having really smart marketers who can really envision how to bring that product to life in the sort of aspect of whatever it is we're doing, whether it's the other art fair or the hunker house or doing, you know, something through one of our other brands, like well and good. Um, one of the other things that we're going to do with them this year is we do a big trend report every year, our wellness trends. We essentially call the trends in December to say what's going to be huge in the wellness space um, in the following year. Um, typically, it's a big immersive digital experience. Um, it's gorgeous. You should go check it out. Um, and we also do sort of a smaller B2B event celebrating sort of the people and the trends that are behind it. Um, but I really think that this is something that could be sort of a six month long franchise that we can imagine in a larger consumer facing event where we can bring other brands in to create unique immersive experiences like our trends come to life sort of all under one house. So that's sort of another way to think about it. Um, sort of another arm of the business. Yeah, and with the wellness trends, my uh, Sarah and I attended it in December. Oh, good. I got uh, ear seating done. Isn't that fun? Wait, what's that? It's like, a, like I don't know, like acupuncture Ac for your ear. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it's meant to like, I think I did the uh, stress relief one at the time. Did it Just, work? I think so. Because I remember <laughs> like that week ended up being extremely stressful for me. And I'm like, this is this is helping. Yeah. This is helping the coping. And process. they're cute. Like generally, they're like little. Yeah, they're like a little gold like diamond. dots. Yeah. yeah, and I don't Big know. Diamonds. It looks like I had like a whole like ear piercing yes. thing going on. It was ear seating is the name. Ear yeah. yeah. I've never. Okay. Yeah, it was I'll interesting. <laughs> yeah, a little gold going. Very. Um, but yeah, so I, in like expanding that to a consumer facing thing because that was a B two B event. But yes. can, like expanding that six months long. That seems like a very, um, talking about overhead, like that seems like a very ambitious kind of uh, uh, production. Six months long in the franchise. So thinking about how do we take it from a content perspective? So all of the trends that we called in uh, December of 22 for 23, we're starting to use those trends in all of the content that we're doing throughout the year. So that's what I mean, sort of elongating out the mm -hmm. franchise. So it's not something that we're just calling in December and then 
talking again next December. It's like, how are we actually using those trends throughout the year and, mm-hmm. you know, using them in our, in our different advertising programs? Um, in any sort of custom events that we do, we'll tap into those trends first to say, what should we anchor it in? Um, and then into sort of December Q4 of how we're going to call 24 trends, we're going to bring the 24 trends to life. Like, ear seating was sort of one example, but we'll take almost all the trends in hope um, and bring them to life, you know, through some sort of immersive experience. It will not be six months. Um, We're still kind of toying around with the ideas of how long it'll be. Um, I would love it to be at the Hunker House. I just think it's an asset that we already own. I'd love it to be in partnership. That's the other thing is sort of thinking about within the portfolio, how can we have sort of two brands packaged together and have, you know, sort of all boats rise. So we've got this amazing, you know, home on Abbot Kinning. We could also do sort of the immersion of like, what are the trends between home design and also wellness and have them all sort of come to life there. And then we can do it from a longer standpoint because again, we own the house and we have the production know-how. And then we're going to be able to offer sort of the weight and strength of two different brands, all that programming, you know, over a longer amount of time. And so with getting into the hunger house, right, because the ultimate goal is to um, avoid a lot of the overhead costs and have a lot of uses coming out of it. It sounds, though, especially in a, a neighborhood that is very desirable, a lot of upfront costs initially. At what point did the hunger house kind of break even or, you know, at what point did the sponsorship revenue coming in make the upfront cost worthwhile? Because there's the... The house is new. The house is newish. Um, we got a, a, you know, we started putting brands into it. Maybe the first one was last summer, so six months ago. Um, that was the Walmart Gap Kids collection. That was sort of our largest and biggest. Um, but again, I think it's going to be sort of on the forefront of what we're doing this year. Um, I don't think, you know, in the past that traditionally the team really thought about these assets as brand forward. It was sort of a one-off in the past. And to me, I think it's the lowest hanging fruit. And to capitalize on a trend, which is experiential being on the rise um, with assets we already have. Um, and it's interesting. A lot of people don't know about us through those brands. We'll sort of go based on one of our premium, you know, media lifestyle brands, whether it's Hunker or um, Well and Good, and come out talking about these things. And most advertisers gravitate towards it, and almost everyone wants some sort of idea or proposal coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is going to be the big year um, of really capitalizing on it. I think if you think about our pipeline right now, I'd say before I started and we started to prioritize um, this forward thinking into this year, maybe experiential was less than 10% of what we did. I think it'll get up to be at least 50% of what we do this year. Wow. This year alone? Yeah. Jeez. That's that's a lot. Yeah. So you mentioned Walmart and Gap Kids coming in to use the space. What are some of the other partnerships that you have lined up for this year? And how long are these kind of takeovers in the house space? Because you mentioned also using it as a production studio too for editorial content. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, right now we're thinking about it a couple different ways. So the month-long takeover is sort of unique and nuanced. And Mm -hmm. I I don't imagine that we're going to have one every month this year, right? Like I bet we'll do two to three this year. Um, The content production piece, I think, is something that can be easily layered into all of our hunker deals. It also helps us sort of give weight to that package on more of a niche brand that's a little bit smaller. Um, So 
I'm seeing a heavier weight on sort of the ladder um, and then thinking about really what are unique and special things that we can do from a takeover perspective. Um, we're working on a couple really exciting ones right now, but they're not 100% inked, so I'll share them as soon as I have them. And so with the takeover, I mean, in a way, you're like a landlord for brands to you know, have their experiences in the house. So I'm curious, like, how you structure those deals. Like, are there lease breaks in these deals? Because I think a big topic Kaylee's doing reporting right now on is, you know, brands doing deals with publishers. And then, like, as it gets close to you know, time, they say, actually, no, we, we can't do this anymore. And they're out. And then yeah. the publisher has to eat all the costs associated with that. That was a fun topic yesterday. Yeah. I walked in on it. I was like, oh, God, Sean's just asked. Great. Um, Yes, with experiential, we do require 50% paid up front. Okay. So there is a strong commitment on both ends because there is so much investment that happens from a production standpoint. Um, is that like a deposit where they, they lose mm-hmm. it if they're okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have never got, and I've done it that way in every other place I've worked, and I've never had pushback in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not seeing pushback, even though obviously our, our, Timelines are getting shorter this year. I'm not seeing pushback on that this year. I think everyone has a really realistic understanding of what it takes to plan and produce something like experiential. So um, it is one of those pieces of business that can help us ground a little bit you know, further in advance than some of the other transactional pieces of our business that are happening more in quarter. And so um, I think part of that conversation yesterday at the town hall was also talking about the uh, payment windows too, like the the post event. Are you seeing brands um, delaying the rest of the spend? Are they pretty good at like paying up once the event's over? Yeah, we haven't seen that yet. Um, Specific to events, no, we haven't seen that yet. And I really haven't seen it too much in media. I've seen it a little bit, but it's not a, a big enough trend that I would call a leaf group. You know, it's in the net 260. That's I know. Oh, my God. That, like, blew my mind. I was like, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> did net, it sounded like in the room net 90 was kind of the consensus of, like, that's most common. Is yeah. That yeah. Net 90 is sort of what we're seeing now. Um, and, again, with the experiential side, just getting 50% up front is critical. Yeah. And so you had referenced that um, TaskRabbit's uh, experiential add-on or event was six weeks of planning. Like, it, it was mm-hmm. a pretty fast yep. turnaround. What are you... I guess, planning for events this year and what is a realistic timeline for getting experiential off the ground, especially when you do have the hunker house, which is already, you know, set, decorated, all that. Like what is a realistic kind of sales cycle um, for events? Yeah, I think they all really vary and I can kind of go through why. Um, The other art fair is, again, its own ticketed event that makes almost all of its money through the sales of our art and through the actual ticket itself. For me to plug a brand into that, um, you know, is a lot easier than me trying to plug a brand into something built, of, you know, built of sold. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for that, you know, we could do something as close as four weeks to the fair. Um, for a Nissan, you know, even outside of their long sort of window, you'd probably want at least two and a half months. Um, uh, the Hunker House, I think, because a lot of that infrastructure is there. Um, it's probably two months, um, which typically if you didn't have the house, I'd say three would be almost too tight. Like I think it'd have to be three and a half to four months. Um, something you know from the ground up, like a well and good wellness trends, I think we'll probably look at three months. Um, and then, you know, tapping into something, you know, more 
turnkey, like just the TaskRabbit stuff at the other art fair, because it is a consumer benefit to what's happening, it's very low touch for our team. Their team's also handling a lot of like the bringing the brand ambassadors, um, sort of the heavy lift. We don't have to do any of that work on behalf of the brand. We did it in six weeks, happily do it in four. We probably could have pulled it off in two. Wow. Yeah. So um, I guess like keeping that in mind, is that like drastically different from pre-pandemic in terms of like sales cycles or is that just what you've always kind of been doing from like a time? I think standpoint? it's, I think it's back on par. So I think that was like really how, again, outside of having these assets pre-pandemic for me, um, I'd say three and a half to four months was like a typical all the way custom build, mm-hmm. um, tacking brands on for more of a turnkey aspect. Once you've got the big custom build sort of in and your sort of marquee brands in, you could probably do it at two months. Um, so we're able to shorten the timelines a little bit because of owning the assets and owning sort of overall experience. But if you're building it from the ground up, it's pretty much back on par with 2019. And what about from like the advertiser perspective? Are they kind of a little bit more demanding and getting things rolling quicker? Or is it just like you have the capabilities of being faster with it? So the sales process starts a little bit later. Like what's the, I guess, sponsorship um, influence on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on your your original question, which is, is it inbound or um, is it proactive? Um, I think the inbounds are still following the seasonal RFP process and sort of nothing has really changed there with the exception of they're making decisions just a lot later. Um, but the RFPs are still coming in the same, you know, sort of set cycles. And then I'd say the proactive stuff, it sort of depends on how much brand awareness is there. So for us, we're having to go out and actually educate them on what the Hunker House is or what the other art fair is um, and sort of why it's meaningful. And that takes a couple more meetings than if it if you're going to something on just well and good, which is obviously has very strong brand affinity and a lot of awareness. Um, so Proactive always generally has a longer timeline because you're sort of introducing something new ahead of the buying cycle. Um, so to me, that's, again, I don't think that has changed, though. I think that that's sort of back to 2019. Got it. Is there, like, a template that you kind of follow and, like, how to familiarize a brand or their agencies with something like Hucker House or the other art fair? I imagine, like, the ideal is, well, just come to Venice. Like, we'll show you yeah. the house. Come, you, there are a number of other art fairs a year, and yeah. so you can take them to some of those. But I imagine that's not always no. feasible, or the brand may be like, well, I'm just really comfortable doing everything remote now. Yeah. <laughs> God, I know. Everyone's getting so comfy in their own homes. Um, yes, to see it in real life is the best way. I have truly, and I will stand by this stat, not brought anyone to the Hunker House and not have them say, we have to do something in this house. Oh, so uh, if you see it in real life, you can imagine the brand possibilities. You can see how unique it is. Um, and, you know, ideas start to flow. Same with the other art fair. Um, just getting people to the fairs. Again, it hasn't been as ad community you know, sort of facing um, up until this year. So I think just getting as many people to the fairs is going to be really helpful for us. Outside of that and getting back to the comfort of our own homes, um, I think, you know, just making sure that we're bringing, I I always say, like, who are the cast of characters you're bringing to the meetings to really bring this to life outside of myself or anyone on a sales or marketing team. Um, So bringing the GM of Hunker, Eve, who, you know, is the brainchild behind not only the Hunker branch, created the brand, um, but also the brainchild behind the house um, is always such a nice way to sort of bring it to life over the you know computer or Zoom. Um, and then for the other art fair, same thing. So this is a business that we bought, like 
seven years ago, I believe. Um, and it's a UK-owned business by a wildly lively gentleman, um, passionate and steeped in the art community, and bringing him into one of those meetings is also just wildly helpful. So I always say, tap the cast of characters outside of sales and marketing, uh, bring a new face, bring something that's you know really a unique value to the meeting, and I think eyes open. You can also generally get a different cast of characters on the other side too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically if you bring a creative, you can typically get a creative to also join, which may see things through a different lens um, and help sort of, you know, build creative and unique ideas outside of just sort of marketing and media minds. And so the other art fair, I think you mentioned there's 11 different events um, happening this year. Yeah. Um, You have uh, Nissan and you have TaskRabbit on the LA event. What about the rest of the events? How are you doing from a a sales perspective? Yeah, so our next ones are going to be late Q2. Um, We are going to be closing sales here probably in the next, six weeks-ish. Um, so again, we're really close on a few that I'm not going to quite mention our jinx here, but um, we'll get through Q2. And then I think the second half is going to be where you're going to see the majority of all of the work because of the sales process is a little bit longer and getting the brand awareness out about the fairs, getting people to the fairs in the first half. Um, so I'm most excited about that. And I'm most bullish on the pop-up that will happen during Basel. Um, because, you know, having art commerce businesses um, and not being there. Um, And that's sort of when I, like the light bulb went off on on experientials back for me, which was going to Basel in 22. Um, The amount of publishers that were there and doing custom creative executions amongst all of the different festivals that were happening with brands. Um, And these were publishers that were not you know, endemic to the art space, I was like, oh boy, we are in for it this year. I think it's going to be a big year of events. And with that, like, do you see costs going up? Or, I mean, inflation's obviously been a huge topic for like over a year now. Like, something like Basel, are they charging more or others, are they charging more for you to be part of their events now? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky with the other art fair because like one might say that it's competitive to Basel. So we have to think about really unique ways to pop up there. You know, the one interesting thing that some people I did not know up until joining the company, which is that Basel isn't Basel. Basel is just one of the festivals that happens during Miami Art Week. It's just the one with the most notoriety. So we all call it Basel in the industry. Um, So Basel is sort of one of the festivals, but there's multiple different festivals happening during the week of Miami Art Week across all the different neighboring areas of Miami. So there's lots of different, like, all the way spanning to like Wynwood, mm-hmm. you can erect in lots of different areas. So people are driving around, going to sort of all the different experiences throughout the throughout the week. So to get into Basel itself, um, yes, is a high price point. I think it's. I don't think it's higher than probably nineteen, but it's it's still maintaining the legacy sort of premium that it is. Um, and I think you know real estate itself to to get space is high because they, they're following the trend of everything being 25% higher. Um, I know, just wild. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's definitely a, a big buy-in to step into something like this. But then I always think about it, like you can offset that with like 25% of the sponsorship fees to just go up as well. Um, and we are getting so much interest um, just to be in the center of that on behalf of the other art fair who's never been there before. And um, it's an interesting dichotomy. The other art fair um, is almost like the antithesis of something that's really sort of superior and sort of in the art space of, you know, sort of being known as something that feels not accessible to most, generally has to have a gallerist, um, you know, 
is the middleman to that. And I think for a lot of people that sort of turns you off to the to the world and makes you, it's kind of an uncomfortable experience. And the other art fair sort of flips that on its head and says that all of our fairs only actually celebrate the artists in the cities in which we are erecting. Um, so with that, you get a really strong local and community aspect. Um, you also get a really strong DEI aspect with that. Um, and it's also taking sort of that tension out of the process and connecting artists directly with consumers. Um, so I love the idea of it popping up during the biggest art festival, which is like not doing that. Um, so I think brands love that too. I think any way you can kind of jump in as a disruptor is always an interesting hook to get people excited. Got it. What about ticket prices on your side? Have those gone up at all? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, certainly over pandemic, um, but yeah, we're seeing it higher than 2018. How much higher? We're somewhere between the 20 to 25. Okay. And is that something where you have to like figure out how to communicate that to people, especially if it's people who have been going for a long time where they're just like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the way we get around it is we're continuing to add experiences, right? So um, when the art fairs started and I think pre-Leaf owning them, it was truly just an art festival. Now we've got music, we've got um, tattoo artists coming um, if it's up to me, maybe we'll have ear seating or some sort of wellness experiences happening there. Um, so I think adding more to the consumer journey is giving them more reason to come and stay and hang out versus just having a drink and actually buying art. Yeah. Well, I went to the one in Brooklyn last fall. I think that was in September. Yeah. Um, and it was packed. It was, it was, and the tattoo artist had like a full like queue, like there wasn't any room left. I couldn't get a tattoo. It's crazy. It's, yeah. it, and, and the audience it's not only that it's packed, like it's a great audience. It's a great audience demo and profile. Yeah, and to your point of like being able to interact with the artists, like it was nice. I ended up buying a piece of art because I spoke with the artist for a yeah. little while. It was a really great experience. Um, and just quickly going back to sponsorships, you mentioned that RFP timelines have been pretty standard. Curious if the volume has increased at all um, around experiential given... Um, I think there's been a lot of interest in general from sponsors, but um, the categories of auto coming back and things yeah. of that nature, how has the volume of RFPs for events um, been doing? For us, high. Um, and I think it's because we own these unique assets in our portfolio um, and it feels new and fresh to the market, quite frankly. Um, so for us, really high. But in terms of what I'm seeing across the industry, it's growing. It's back mm -hmm. and it's growing. And I think brands need to um, start to remember what it's like to invest in brand awareness again. Um, and we're seeing that, obviously, with the example of Nissan um, in, sort of a, in sort of a major way. Um, and I think a lot of people have, you know, I know we talked about this yesterday in the, in the publisher um, huddle, is a lot of people are like, oh, second half, oh, second half. Um, and I do feel like in the brands and advertisers that I'm talking to, they feel really bullish about second half. Um, and they feel really like we need to get back into remembering what it is we stand for and what the brand stands for and how to get awareness out in the brand right now. So yes, I, I feel like I'm one of the like delusional optimists in the second half and <laughs> not just Saturday. Um, so I am also hopeful, but it's also informed by like a lot of the brand leads that I'm hearing are also feeling like we need to get back to thinking about the brand versus just transactional that's, you know, we've been seeing in a little bit last year. And given like what you're seeing with the traction among, you know, advertisers and you know, potential deals for experiential going in the second half, are you using that at all to give yourself visibility to, you know, line up advertising deals? Because that was another topic yeah. that came up in the town hall is kind of like the ad sales hesitation. And I think uh, visibility was kind of the challenge that got put on the board. Yeah. And, and for us, you know, we can't compete on scale. 
So um, if we can't compete on scale, we have to compete on sort of what the environment is, um, what the unique proposition is. Um, for that, for us, it's a large part of it's experiential. Um, so we can lead with that and then package the media around it to drive higher deals. Um, you know, some of our experiences that we'll do, whether it's at the house or at the other art fair or something totally custom or something through the lens of well and good, um, we'll have, you know, minimum step-ins um, to be able to do something really unique and immersive. Um, and from there, we'll package media in just to drive their overall deal up. Got it. Because how, like, we've been talking a lot about experiential on the advertising side of the business. Yeah. How do you see that playing out, like, when experiential isn't a part of it? Unless the goal is, like, no, we want experiential to be part of everything because of how things have been going for you. Wait, clarify the question? Like, whether, how are you managing the advertising business, like, when it just comes to kind of traditional ad yeah. sales as opposed to things that you can tether to experiential? Yeah. Look, it's not a great time. I mean, it's sure. not it's not a great time when you can't compete on scale, right? So um, what you're seeing in the market is obviously tons of, at least from a pure play, you know, digital standpoint, you're seeing tons of consolidation. They're then competing on scale and, and product. Um, we have really unique sites. Um, we have no interest in being sold off or going public. Like I think a lot of some of, you know, our competitors in the last few years have sort of gone to. Um, we have a really unique ability to be tethered to um, other sides of a business. So we call ourselves a diversified internet business. We have a media part of it and we have ad and revenue commerce. So we're not totally beholden to everything that's happening in the media industry right now and what's happening specific to advertising. Um, so for that, we've got a little bit of a shoulder, right? Um, so it's not the shining part of our business right now. Um, we are trying to tack it on to the things that are working. Mm. Um, so, you know, if our art and commerce businesses are really strong, um, another thing that we're sort of doing through Society6, which I think is really interesting and also kind of parallels into experiential. So stick with me for a second. Most people don't, don't understand that at first, including you. Um, I love premise. <laughs> which is um, these idea of these creator boxes. So it's something I sort of imagined up during the pandemic, which is how do we continue to sell experiential when everybody's at home? Um, and we were doing sort of these, these sweepstakes boxes, which were creator boxes through different seasonal themes and brands could then integrate their product into it. Um, so we do it through like behalf of one of our editorial brands and they'd have like a wellness box or, um, you know, a mental health box, awareness month box, um, et cetera, et cetera. It was great. There was a tremendous demand um, of getting sort of product in the homes of consumers and getting them to actually experience product firsthand again. Um, we have not seen the demand diminish in the pandemic you know, coming out of the pandemic. So it's something I really want to weave into what we're doing here um, at LEAF. And the way that we're uniquely able to do it here is through Society6. Society6 is this massive creator marketplace. We have access to all the creators, so we can do it through the lens of one of our creators as sort of the influencer. Um, or we can do it through the lens of our editors through Well and Good or Hunker um, and do, again, some of these interesting seasonal themes for our brands to plug into. What's really unique here is subscription boxes themselves are not a great margin business. You also have to create and manage a subscription list. We get around it by doing it through sweepstakes, which also offers sort of a data collection layer to our advertisers and gives you another layer of value and hits on sort of a different KPI. 
Um, the other unique thing is through Society6, we own the production and the shipping. Um, so we're able to actually do it from a much better cost perspective in-house and also on a much shorter timeline. So thinking about timelines, that's something that I used to have to do like three months in advance of sourcing everything, figuring out how to ship and doing it all sort of externally. We can do that now all in-house and we can do that within six weeks, which is really unique. And it seems like that's a theme for Leaf of like you, you all like owning the things, owning the production, owning the process. Yeah. And I think, look, I think that's the thing, the biggest takeaway for me, I guess, on this session as I think about experiential is for publishers to think about what do you uniquely have within your portfolio and what are you doing already? How can you turn that on for an advertiser in a new way that you haven't thought of before? So the fact that we own the shipping and the production and the access to creators and influencers and we don't have to go outside of our network for that, that's really wildly unique. The fact that we own the real estate on Abbott Kinney with the Hunker House to be able to embed brands into full brand takeovers, even outside of the home and design community, right? So we have a ton of interest from beauty brands coming in and wanting to um, take over the house. We have a ton of interest from retail brands um, because everything is inherently uh, experiential commerce throughout the house, so everything can be bought. Um, and then thinking about the other art fair, which is we do 11 fairs. Um, we have, you know, let's say average 8,000 guests that come through over two to four days um, with a very strong demographic of who these actual you know, people are um, and to be able to actually just jump in and capitalize on something that's already existing um, as a standalone business is sort of the way that I'm creatively and uniquely thinking about experiential here. Yeah. And so it sounds like commerce is really underlying in nearly every aspect of your experiential business. Do you think that's a very crucial part of the success of events, like having people not only pay for tickets, but you know, transacting while they're there? Do you think that's kind of like mm -hmm. a golden ticket way for experiential to work? Or do you think that there's opportunities without? Yeah, I think it, I actually don't. I, I think it works because we, you know, the businesses we have are inherently commerce forward, mm -hmm. right? So we have it and we can check that box if it is interesting to a brand. Actually, a lot of brands can't do it. A lot of brands actually don't even know how to do it. They can't wrap their, their minds around it. But they have the ability to actually surround consumers while they're thinking about shopping within the house or thinking about that within the other art fair. So you're in the sort of shopping mode and your brand is being brought to the forefront of that, even if you're not transacting. Um, so I think, you know, it checks the box for some advertisers that, that have the capability of being able to actually transact and, and uh, play within the commerce world. But I think, you know, sort of the halo effect of being around the commerce-driven sort of mindset is what most advertisers are looking for. Right. Very few people attending the other art fair are going to buy a Nissan while they're there. Right. I mean, if someone buys an Aria, I mean, <laughs> just, I'm dead. Like, yeah. that's just, that's amazing. Yeah, that's your retirement right Yeah, there. exactly. We the just will end here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. This was a great conversation. So great. Say thanks, especially considering the morning you've had. Oh, right. my God. Let's see. It can only go up from here. There you go. That's great. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. Of course. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.